Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Dave Asprey is the founder of Bulletproof and the man who literally put biohacking in the dictionary. Yes, that's a word now, guys. He's known for having a very strong point of view, which you might not always agree with. However, there is absolutely no denying he is a futurist and one of the leading voices and brands in the wellness world today. Dave, welcome. I'm really happy to be here. I am so glad you are here. Finally, you've come to Revitalize, but now you've finally come to our office here in Brooklyn. It is an awesome office, and you guys have so much class. I walk in the door, and there's a chalkboard that says, Welcome, Dave Asprey. (laughs) That's just a nice touch of care. Oh, well, thank you so much. And of course, you come bearing gifts, bringing my favorite bars, the Bulletproof Bars. Guys, stay away from the cookie dough. I warn you. (laughs) (laughs) So you can eat it all, right? (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it is so great for you to be here. Um, You have an incredible health story. So let's start there, and what happened to you? Jason, I'm 45 now, and before I was 25, I hit 300 pounds. I was diagnosed with arthritis in my knees when I was 14, and I've had some mix before I was 30 of high risk of stroke and heart attack, uh, prediabetes, toxic mold exposure, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and uh, cognitive dysfunction, where I just got really bad brain fog. And this happened in the middle of growing a career in Silicon Valley, where I was really successful. And I got to the point where I had the accelerator all the way down all the time, and I was slowing down no matter what I did. And I tried working out an hour and a half a day, six days a week, half weights, half cardio, going on a low-fat, low-calorie diet. And after 18 months of that, I was able to lift the weights on every machine to the max, except for two machines at the gym, and I still weigh 300 pounds. And I remember I was at Carl's Jr. with some of my friends. Pre-grass-fed burgers. Pre-grass-fed burgers. And I mean, this is 20 years ago now. And they're eating double Western bacon cheeseburgers with onion rings and all this stuff. And I'm eating a salad with no dressing and no chicken breast. And I just thought to myself, I could bench press all my friends while they eat their food. I eat less than any of them. I work out more than any of them. And I'm fatter than all of them. And I just thought, this is clearly because I'm weak. It's a moral failing. It's because I'm not trying hard enough. And one day I just kind of snapped and said, you know what? I actually am doing everything that they said would work at the doctor's office, you know, in the magazines and the the advice. And it wasn't a personal failing. It was just terrible advice. And I realized I was going to have to do this myself. And so what did you do next? Well, I did what any thinking engineer in Silicon Valley would do. I ordered $1,200 worth of smart drugs from Europe. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I had things backwards back then. Uh, I thought it was all about the mind. And so I said, I'm feeling cognitive dysfunction. Uh, I've lost, you know, half this weight and I've lost 20 pounds, gained 30, but at least I'm not 300 pounds anymore. I'm, you know, 250, 280, whatever. And they actually helped. They let me focus so I could at least stay employed. And I say that kind of jokingly. My career was, I was doing fantastically well, but... 
I wouldn't have hired myself. I bought disability insurance when I was 26 because I'm like, something's wrong. My labs all say I'm good. The doctor says I'm fine. But I know my brain isn't what it it is supposed to be and what it was. And no one can tell me why. And the smart drugs gave me the energy and the focus to finish work at the company that held Google's first servers when Google was two guys in a server. And then go home and read PubMed papers and health research uh, for two to four hours every night before I'd fall asleep sometimes at my desk. And I became an expert in this. And within a couple of years, I joined an anti-aging nonprofit group in Silicon Valley. And I became the president and the chairman and board member and things like that. So for 20 years, I've had access to world-leading anti-aging people. And I started looking at people who were 80-something years old who were performing better than me cognitively and saying, well, what they're doing, maybe I can do that. And I realized... I had most of the same symptoms as old people, but I was a young person. And I realized I'm going to learn from the wisdom of my elders. And when I started applying those techniques, I started to improve and I started to understand why things happened. And it was very different than what the doctor told me. The doctor told me, Dave, stop taking vitamin C. It could kill you. And, <laughs> and I looked at this guy and I said, what about Linus Pauling? And Linus Pauling won two Nobel Prizes and took 80 grams of vitamin C a day and is well known. And the guy said, Linus who? And <laughs> I looked at the doctor and I said, you're fired. And I, you know, that's the F word I use towards doctors who don't know what to do. And uh, I walked out of the office. I never paid him. It's probably still on my credit report. And I just said, this is my problem. And four years later, I was pretty angry back then. Uh, four years later, I went to a doctor and I said, I have one of these seven things going on in this order. I want this test and this treatment protocol. And she sort of stepped back and said, all right, Dave, I am an expert in this. And uh, she was a functional medicine doctor. They didn't have the name for that back then. But uh, she said, why don't we at least take these in the order that I'm going to recommend? And she said, oh, you've got Lyme disease. Oh, and you've got heavy metals. And you've got toxic mold. And it was sort of, I had everything. Not alone, yeah. And genetics that weren't in my favor. And now I'm sitting here, I'm 11.5% body fat, there's 23.5 pounds of fat on my body, I work out less than I did back then, I have not experienced hunger um, in years, uh, even if I fast, the, the, I, could, like, I could eat, it'd be nicey, but it's not that clawing, craving, you know, I will die if I don't go to lunch right now thing that I had when I was fat. And so I have this sense of, you know, physical freedom that comes from having a body that looks very different than I'm used to. But without huge amounts of effort, I just chose, I don't eat the stuff that makes me feel bad, and then I don't gain weight, and it's all good. Right. So when in this process, you heal yourself, you start to feel better, and when did you say, like, okay, I, I want to share this message with the world, and when, when did the vision for Bulletproof come in? In 2004, I finished business school, and I exited a relationship I was in. Uh, and I said, I'm going to go to Tibet. I want to learn meditation from the masters. I've maxed out on the, the Western science side of things. So I started doing personal development things. And as a computer science guy who studied you know, artificial intelligence and things like that, I said, I'm going to do the stuff that's not supposed to work because I'm curious and a little bit skeptical. And I did holotropic breathing with Stan Groff. And I uh, spent three months in Asia. I went to Peru and I did ayahuasca with the shaman before it was cool. And... <laughs> Like everyone's doing that now. Yeah, now it's like way cool. Uh, when I went there, it was really funny. At the guest house where I was staying, I said I wanted to do it, and they looked at me and they said, "Dave, you're white." 
<laughs> and and I said, yeah, I know. And they said, but this is for you know, local people. You're going to throw up. You're not going to like it. And I said, yeah, I want to do it anyway. And so they took a day to find someone who would be willing to do this with some crazy tourists. And it was uh, one of the things I did for my, my personal development. And what I realized is that there is great knowledge and wisdom in what we do in the West. And there's a different set of knowledge in the East and that it crosses over more than you'd think. And I came back from that trip and I started thinking, well, I know these orthomolecular physicians, which is now what we call functional medicine. Right. I know these anti-aging gurus, but I also have come to know martial artists and meditation masters and people who use nutrition in a very different way and you know, pro athletes, bodybuilders, gymnasts. And you start to think we all have a uniting element, but there is no community for us. And what was missing was a place to bring together these people who would never really talk to each other. You know, when does a neuroscientist really get to talk to a nutritionist 10 years ago? The answer was almost never. And I said, there's got to be a name for it. And I created the name Biohacking for this space. And it turns out now, uh, about a week before we are recording this, Merriam-Webster's just added biohacking to the dictionary, uh, one of 840 new words for this year. And they actually have my name in it, which is wow, really cool. congratulations. Thank I you. I know that. Uh, it was it was really kind of cool just to see that a friend uh, texted it to me, and the idea there was the uniting element is control over our own biology, and you don't get control by wanting it. Your body listens to what you think a little bit, it listens to what you feel a lot, and it listens to the environment around you even more. So what if you could change the environment around you to give you control of your biology? And when control is the uniting element, you have one person who says, "I want to get swole." Another one says, I'm going to live to at least 180. Another one says, I want my IQ to be 40 points higher. Another one says, you know, I want to have enough energy to commute two hours a day, work 10 hours a day, and still be there for my kids. We all want that. I, I don't want cravings anymore. I want to look a certain way. These types of things unite all humans, but we didn't have a name to bring all these communities together, and that's what biohacking became. And so, 2000, so in other words, 2004, this is when I love how because people are like, oh, bulletproof, he's killing it, overnight success. <laughs> that, that was when I started this. I, I saw my journals uh, that I wrote when I was in Tibet, and I was trying to find the right name for this. And I hadn't kind of settled on biohacking, but I was, I was around that. And the reason I like hacking, well, I worked in computer security for a long time in Silicon Valley. Yep. But what hackers do, they take over a system, but they don't have to know everything about it. And what computer scientists do is they know every little detail. And they're just different mindsets. Do you want to get the result having control of the system? Or did you want to study every line of code? They're both very valuable. But I would love to know every line of code in my body. Maybe we'll get there. In the meantime, I'd like to be alive when they figure that out. And that means getting control now. So I'm going to do what works. And if we don't know the mechanism of action yet, that's okay. And that's why I'm totally happy to go see a shaman. <laughs> shaman Derek. Yeah, exactly. I'm happy to meditate, happy to do crazy stuff. But it's not that crazy because, well, if the risk isn't very high and you try it and it works and it's worked for a bunch of other people, maybe it's placebo. I don't really think so, but I'm okay with that too. I'll harness placebo to get the advantage. I just want to feel good. I want to have the energy it takes to handle whatever life brings my way, no matter what it is, and to know I can tap into that. I didn't have that when I was 25, and I'm 45, and I've got it. And so this path has worked really well. So what have you learned today? So 20 years later, 45, you, you feel the best you've ever felt. 
you're performing a high level sleep stress all, all those things we talked about like well, what does that look like today for you like what have you learned how do you you know how do you eat what don't you eat um how is that sure. you know how have you changed uh, one of the biggest things i learned is that there are answers for almost everything out there but that the information is not well distributed and it's not well communicated so in early 2012 maybe late 2011 i said i need to write this down i feel kind of a moral obligation i've got i've got a job as a vp in a big tech company with stock options and all that uh, but I'm going to start a blog and maybe five people will read it. And I'm going to write the things that I should have known when I was 20. And if someone would have just told me that it would save me the, at this point, a million dollars I've spent on my own biology. When I started the blog, I'd spent $300,000 becoming more than I was before, but really 15, 20 years of, of suffering and hard work and time invested. People knew the answers. I just couldn't find them. And so I said, I'm going to do this. And it turns out more than five people are interested and it became a blog and a book and Bulletproof Radio sure. and, and a company. But it's if you don't know how to assimilate the information or at least how to communicate it, it doesn't matter if someone somewhere knows it, if you're not connected to it. And then the next step is, okay, now we can search for it. But how do you know what's credible? You know, we could spend the rest of our life or our lives testing each different thing and never know what worked or didn't work. And so it became kind of a core skill to suss out what's credible and what's not credible, what's worth trying, what's not worth trying, and then what's worth sharing. And I ended up spending thousands of hours writing and doing research for the Bulletproof Diet. And the reason I wrote the book is partly I wanted to share, but partly there was no better way to learn than either to teach something or write a book about it. So I make a practice of writing these books to crystallize my thinking in it. And in The Bulletproof Diet, there's a bunch of different things, but the, the biggest thing is it's a roadmap. And it was a one-page infographic. It took six weeks to develop just the images for this. And it's the entire book on a single sheet of paper. And I give that away for free. Yeah. <laughs> the, it's great. I look at that frequently. Oh, do you? Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, great, it's a great, nice, like you just Google and you get the JPEG online. You look yeah. at it, you put it in your phone. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So thank you. I, I didn't even know that you, you'd seen it. And the, the idea there is there are a set of foods that make almost everyone feel good. And they're low in toxins. And toxins are sometimes man-made, but quite often they're made by Mother Nature. This is going to sound shocking, but plants don't want us to eat their babies. <laughs> they, plants can't run away, so like, I'll just cover myself in something that makes them sick over time. Enough of the animals will die, and they won't eat too many of us, and it's all good. And Mother Nature kind of works that way. So maybe we take those out just for a couple weeks, and you eat only what I call the bulletproof foods. And these are things like certain kinds of vegetables, grass-fed butter, fats that are undamaged, and if you're going to eat meat, which I think is a great idea, it's moderate to low amounts of grass-fed, wild-caught, sustainable meat that supports our soil, never industrial meat. And if you do things like that, very quickly, whoa, my body doesn't hurt, my skin looks better, I've lost weight. But the most important thing, I have mental clarity. My brain turned on. I don't yell at my kids as much. I can pay attention. Uh, my muffin top is smaller. Like, and it's not a subtle thing. And then there's a list of suspect foods. And this is uh, in my new book uh, called Game Changers. And it said, look, different foods work for different people. Right. And in the suspect foods, they're all guilty until proven innocent. So I tell you, for two weeks, don't eat anything in that big list of foods and see how you do. And then add the foods back in and see how you do. 
And you might find, wow, I didn't realize if I eat bell peppers, I, my joints hurt. But if I don't eat them, I feel amazing. You're never going to know that until you take it and its similar cousins out of your diet. So this is kind of a two-week eliminate the things most likely to be guilty. Right. And there's a list of just kryptonite foods. And these are crap for everyone. And you shouldn't eat those. So what are some of those? And I'm but, curious, like, have your views changed at all? Because, like, th there's science is evolving. New stuff is coming out. And I'm curious, like, since in the past couple of years, like, has anything evolved? Like, oh, I, maybe this was a little, uh, maybe not so bad or vice versa. Well, uh, there are some things that have evolved for sure. The kryptonite foods are clearly processed foods, dyes, colorings, MSG, margarine. Those are sure. kind of obvious for people who've listened to this. But grains in general, and I don't care if they're gluten-free grains, they're still grains, with the exception of probably white rice for most people. Because you're a sushi guy. Oh, I love Follow sushi. Follow Dave on Instagram. There's there's a lot of sushi there's on there, and I've, I've wanted to ask you about that. Okay. So Ooh. the white rice, the sushi's... Here's the deal with white rice versus brown. Brown rice has 80 times more arsenic than white rice. Really? Arsenic is not good for you. <laughs> that's, you that's, that's the quote for this podcast. Arsenic is not good <laughs> right. for you. Dave asked. Shouldn't be that obvious, <laughs> but... Uh, and people don't know that. And with grains, they say, well, they have fiber. Here's the deal. If I gave you a bowl of fiber and I sprinkled some nice cyanide on it, would you really eat it? You wouldn't. So why do we look at whether it has something good before we look at whether it has something bad? And the first thing on the, the way of thinking about the bulletproof diet, the lifestyle, you stop doing the things that make you weak. So I don't care if there's fiber in brown rice. There's fiber in vegetables, too. And there's fiber in some starchy foods that don't have a coating on them to prevent animals from eating them, animals like us. So when people eliminate grains from their diet, they feel better, they look better, and then they say something like, but I like grains. And that's okay. I know people say they like heroin too, but it doesn't mean they should use it. Uh, it's just, it's not good for you. It probably won't kill you depending on who you are. And the deal is what kind of life do you want to live? So I'm willing to say, don't do it. And some people, you know, I eat it occasionally and I'm pretty good. And other people that eat it, they feel it. Sure. They, they look different and they're not as nice for a few days. Whichever one of the categories you're in, when you're 80 or 100, you'll be glad you didn't eat grains. And so white rice, so just to be clear, white rice, sushi, okay. One of the cool things about white rice, in sushi specifically, without sugar, is that when you cook rice and you cool it, it forms resistant starch, which feeds the healthy bacteria in your gut. Hmm. And that's a neat little hack. So when you do sushi, you ask for a little bit of rice, and you're getting fish, which has undamaged fish oil in it because it's not cooked. And you get some seaweed, which is iodine and other things like that. And not much else. And pretty much on Instagram, you always see me doing the same thing. I put sea salt on it. And I put brain octane oil, which mm -hmm. is the same stuff that goes in Bulletproof Coffee. I put that in every meal from my kids, uh, my whole family. It's in the Bulletproof Collagen Bars you like. And I do that because it raises your ketone levels in the body. And when you have moderate amounts of ketones, it changes two hormones that matter dramatically. And one of them is called ghrelin. This is the hormone that makes you hungry and gives you cravings. And one's called CCK. And it was invented by Calvin Klein. And, uh, <laughs> Just uh, making sure you're paying attention. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> you laughed. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the, the Calvin Klein hormone, uh, cholesto, was it, cholestokinin, I'm forgetting his name right now. Uh, it's one of the hardest ones to say for me for some reason. Uh, anyway, uh, CCK will cause fullness. 
So if you can get way less ketones than you get if you're, I only eat bacon uh, kind of perspective, right. you turn off these two hormones and all of a sudden what tortured me when I was heavy, I was sitting there in Silicon Valley in a conference room and they bring in a plate of cookies at two in the afternoon and I'm just like, I'm not going to eat the cookie. And then the little voice in your head says, eat the cookie. And you go back and forth. And after about 10 times of saying no, you say, okay, I'll just eat half the cookie. And then you're like, God, I'm such a failure. Like, why did I do that? And that voice is gone. There's no voice that says eat the cookie. You sit him down. I'm like, I'm actually, I don't want any food right now. I, I'm actually, I have enough energy. And for me, that was really a liberating experience. And so I don't make brain octane optionals. I'm like, I fed my gut bacteria with my sushi. I got omega threes for my brain and I got to feed all the parts of me that I wanted. And that's why you see me always doing it. So a couple of things, you know, curious about a couple of things. One recently, I think it was someone, I forget her title at Harvard, but said basically coconut oil is like the word, very unflattering uh, words for <laughs> coconut pure oil. Poison. Pure poison. Yes, very strong language. Like, how do you think about that? Like, if something changed for you, would you be okay saying like, all right, you know, maybe there's new data here. Uh, I'm okay with that. And then there's some people listening who have a vegan or vegetarian slant and they're like, well, I want to do this, but... I can't eat bacon all or whatever it is. And, sure. and what do you say to those people who don't I'm, want to eat animal products? I, I'm happy to make changes over time. And I like to think, you know, way back in Neanderthal times, uh, there was probably some caveman who said, said, but fire is dangerous. And that guy's not our ancestor. And uh, you're talking about evolution there. When a Harvard doctor says things from the 1970s, and does not present any new information or new studies and ignores 20 years of data and says coconut oil is pure poison, um, there's a name for that, and it's not flattering. Uh, so I'm not going to say it. But there was no science. There was no research. It was right. simply a statement at some conference in Amsterdam that was blown up online. So no, coconut oil is not pure poison. But I'll tell you something. If you eat crap, including industrial processed meat, uh, not even just processing meat, but industrially raised meat that eats corn and soy and antibiotics and glyphosate, you eat a lot of sugar, you're going to have dysfunctional gut bacteria. Dysfunctional gut bacteria make a toxin called LPS. When you eat any kind of fat, including coconut oil, it helps this toxin to cross the gut barrier. It's called an endotoxin, and it causes brain fog and inflammation and inflammation of your arteries. So is coconut oil pure poison? No. Is having bad bacteria in your gut really bad for you on many different levels? Yes, it is. I don't think I saw that Harvard scientist talking about it because I don't think she knows about it. Right. So, like, what's interesting? So, you're one of the guys I look to. Like, I'm always, you know, you're a futurist, and mm -hmm. you're one of the few people. I, I like to say a handful of people say, like, what when I'm looking to see what's going on, what's new, what's interesting. You're one of those people I look to, and so curious like what is on your radar in terms of new foods ingredients herbs like what's new what's interesting where's maybe science catching up what's trending like what has you i, I just realized i accidentally dodged your vegan question there i feel like i should you can come one. back to that you want to come back to that yeah. right, i don't want to leave people hanging on that one all right so what's what's new and what's interesting i think we're seeing a disruptive uh, sea change in the food industry People have become aware, mostly because of the internet, and in part because of the work you're doing, uh, just that what they eat matters. And we were raised, uh, at least if you're over about 30, 
that mm, it's just calories. It doesn't really matter. Food doesn't affect your disease. In fact, it's illegal to say food affects disease even to this day um, if you're selling a food product. Right. So it's really interesting because consumers know. And they have made radical changes in their spending. The stock in the big consumer packaged goods companies, the big food, I like to call them, uh, it's going down. And sales are going down. And they are losing their shit. Uh, they don't know what to do. Because, well, we'll make prettier labels and we'll say even bigger words. But people just don't buy it because they can read labels. So then they try to obfuscate labels by joining the Grocery Manufacturers Association sure. and making legislation to make it even harder for us to know what's in our food. And people won't do it. So disruption's happening right now. And this is the third cycle of disruption in my career. I did disruptive technology in Silicon Valley. And I just love it. Because the big food companies simply are not equipped to deal with consumers who look at food differently than the way they always have. And they will look at a company like Bulletproof and they'll say, well, they seem to be doing well. Should they call you up every week? (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm sure that they're paying attention. But the, the idea here is the use case for Bulletproof isn't the use case that they're targeting for their audience. They're saying, you know, convenient snacking. Like, you probably don't really need to do a lot of snacking if you eat right. Like, let's work on your on your meals. Right. And once they realize that the use case for Bulletproof is their use case, it's too late. And this is written about by a guy named Clayton Christensen sure, from Harvard. Sure, the chasm. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the, the innovator's dilemma. Yeah. So it's kind of written in the history of business going back 100 years, what this cycle looks like. And it's a great place to be because... So how many years do you think we have left in this? It's like disruption. And I want to go back to like foods and ingredients sure. and vegan. So at this point, how many years in this, if CPG is being disrupted in a good way as we speak, like where do you think we are in this cycle? Is it we have five years left, 10 years left? Like I'm curious. Well, there, there's two ways disruption goes. There's you know, five to eight year cycles in technology. And in some of those cases, the companies that were upstarts, they buy the companies they took down. Mm-hmm. And I'd be happy to play that game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not counting on it, though, because the supply chain for food is very different. It's yes. very complex, and distribution is mostly controlled by a few companies. So what happens is the value of the big companies declines. The value of the smaller upstarts who are disrupting things, making them better, they go up dramatically. And what that does is it forces change on the big companies, which is the goal when I started. Like, I want to be able to go to the gas station and go to the little tray of crappy snacks that don't, I don't even see them anymore because my brain says those are not food. And I want to be able to pick up any item and not even have to turn the label over to, to look at it and say, you know, this is all food. I'm going to eat this. And if we can build a world like that, that's what kids are going to eat. That's what everyone's going to eat. And we'll stop destroying our, our soil. We'll stop ruining our aquifers. And we'll start treating animals with respect. And that's where this will end up. But that's a 20-year cycle. So you think we're still early? We're still early. Yeah, I agree. But the big guys are changing. And the reason it's going to take a long time, it takes a while to grow grass-fed cows. It takes a while to fix the soil you destroyed with your corn crops and chemicals. But we will fix it because people will refuse to buy the crap. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think the big companies get it, too. You just walk around Expo. And and you see what's going and the interest and the suits and private equity. And it's happening. It is, and I'm, I'm inspired and I'm happy about it. And every time a big food company says, well, we're going to launch a, a natural products brand, the big question in mind, will you do it right? Well, most of them know they can't innovate fast enough. Yeah. It's just better to acquire the company. You know, mm-hmm. I'd say RX Bar in a lot of degree, you know, very successful, you know, very successful in that acquisition so far. And that continue will happen. And I think 
my take, the big brands look at brands and ask the question, are they platforms? You yeah. know, can they be a platform? Can they do multiple things in this age where direct to consumers growing, digital physicals merging? And so to me, it's interesting in your brand, like you're a platform. It, it's funny because startups are supposed to, you know, like RX Bar, we make bars and then a company buys a bar company. When I went to fund Bulletproof, we were doing pretty well. We didn't, we didn't really need as much funding as we raised. And I went to some VC friends and I said, I don't think this is a venture backable company because we're in five different categories. Who's going to buy a company in five categories? Right. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sell Bulletproof. I want to change the world with it. And they came back and said, actually, um, we're not so sure about that. We think content and e-commerce and all these are important. And they convinced me. And they were right. And part of my mission is I know that people are nicer to each other when they're well-fed. So if I can get, <laughs> if I can get Bulletproof in lots of people's uh, minds and lots of people's uh, you know, cupboards, then we make a world full of people who sure. are less hangry and less hypoglybitchy. Just because these are my states when I was fat, I know these feelings. Uh, so uh, that's why I took I took the venture money. That's why I decided to go big. That's why I decided to go into you know every Whole Foods, every Sprouts, and now how many stores? Are, how many doors are you in? Now? About five thousand. Wow, that's awesome. And we're uh, we're number one in almost all of our categories. The Bulletproof Cold Brew Coffee, number one, two, three, and four. Uh, coffees. Wow. <laughs> and uh, one of our bar flavors is the top selling protein bar right now. And it's not my favorite. Uh, the cookie dough is my favorite. I am a cookie dough bulletproof junkie. <laughs> that one's good. And, and, but to be in five categories, for the big guys, they're like, oh, maybe that is a platform. <laughs> and uh, my take on this is there's more categories coming because when you can. Can build, you tell us what? Oh, I'd, I'd like to tell you. <laughs> Can you give us something? Or let me, I'll go back to the original question. So like, what's interesting? So like now everyone's like, you know, hemp, CBD, collagen, bone, broth. like these are the things that are Oshawa sure. got, you know, we can Co go into mushrooms. Like what's interesting to Co you? Collagen is fascinating. Um, bulletproof put collagen on the roadmap. I'm like, you need to put collagen in your Bulletproof coffee sure. if you want to get protein. Collagen has special powers. And we were the first performance collagen company. And since then, I think that was one of the things that started the bandwagon for collagen. Sure. You see it in everything now. And you know, there's industrial you know, chicken-based collagen that I wouldn't feed to, like a, to a cat. So what, what's like interesting? What's something we maybe haven't heard of that's under the radar? Is it sea vegetables? Is it like, what's, what's interesting? You're like, hmm, I've been taking that. I'm feeling good. Maybe that, that's interesting. I am always trying new things. And one of the things that's, Really exciting is something most people haven't heard of. It's called Peely Nuts. Peely Nuts. Can you spell that? P-I-L-I. -I. You ever tried them? No. They make macadamias look like peanuts. They're the most ketogenic nut. They're really creamy and uh, delicious. They come from somewhere tropical. I'm forgetting which country. It might be Philippines. And uh, I've had a few of those. I order them online. And you know, they're genuinely good. I'm not sure I could put them in bars because they're just too fatty. But it's a kind of nut no one's heard of Peely nuts. that is just crazy delicious. And maybe if you crossed a macadamia and a pine nut, you get something like okay. that. And things like that no one would have heard of, but they have the ability to just catch on and explode. But my concern there is when you look at things like, oh, here we go. It is from the Philippines. My trusty executive producer just came in and showed me a little something. Uh, I forgot what I was saying, though. So Peely Nuts. So what else? What, what? Well, here, here's the issue. Anytime you get a, a flash interest in something like a Peely Nut, you get what we did with quinoa. And here's the deal. Quinoa isn't that good for you. 
and I'm sorry to burst people's bubble. If you're going to eat it, you need to eat it the way they do down in Peru where I did ayahuasca. And you ferment it for a couple of days or you cook it in a pressure cooker. Most restaurants won't do that. They just right. take it and steam it or boil it. And you get huge amounts of these plant protective compounds that screw up your gut. So uh, cooking foods properly is important, but you get the, we didn't do it right. And then there's a shortage of quinoa for native people who've been eating it for thousands of years because we're buying so much of it in the U.S. And so now they're burning down plantations, they're sure. burning down forests, building you know, quinoa farms. We don't want to do that. So when we start getting interest in an ingredient, uh, we want to be able to say, how do we sustainably source and get it? And this is going to be an increasing challenge. So what's getting me really excited is some of the containerized shipping uh, crop growing technologies where, look, does it really make sense to grow something 3,000 miles away and use all that oil to truck it in when we might just use solar power during the day to charge the batteries that run LED lighting so we can have zero pesticide, high nutrient, healthy crops? I don't think that's as good as things that are exposed to Mother Nature. I live on an organic farm with four sheep and two pigs, and I grow all my own food, at least when I'm home I do. And that's superior, but if you're not going to do that, is it better to get something that didn't wreck a jungle halfway around the world that was grown near you uh, that was free of pesticides? I I think that's where we're going. So what else is interesting to you? Like what's underrated? Like people will say the example I'll use, like everyone loves kale, kale's everywhere, but you know, some will argue that there's some better dark leafy greens. Man, kale is, kale is not a superfood. (laughs) Not only does it taste bad, unless you cover it in MSG, also known as nutritional yeast or sugar or something. Um, here's the deal with kale. It's full of oxalic acid. About a third of the population does not have a gut bacteria that can process that. So it goes into your blood, forms microcrystals with calcium, and sticks in places like your joints, your brain, or in women, uh, certain reproductive organs that causes painful contact. Or maybe kidney stones. It doesn't happen to everyone, but I've enough. Had kidney stones. You don't want them. No, you don't. Oh, and do you know about thallium? Educate us. All right. We all know leaded gasoline was bad, so we took lead out, right? Well, they replaced with thallium, which is about 100 times more toxic. And it's actually known as the poisoner's poison because they used to use it in Russia to poison people. It displaces potassium in cells. Guess which plant accumulates thallium from the environment more than any other? Gal. It is indeed. Wow. So So what's what's your dark leafy green of choice these days? I like red lettuce. Red lettuce? Yeah. Over spinach? Definitely over spinach. Broccoli too. Uh, I love broccoli, but it's not leafy, so I was. Okay. Oh, that's that's it, fair. Okay, you got me in a tech, you got me in a dark leafy green technicality. It, here's the deal with broccoli. <laughs> broccoli clearly evolved to hold butter. It, you can just tell by its shape. It, it, it's Mother Nature telling us to just soak it in something fatty. <laughs> it, it has to be that way for a reason. So red, le- why red lettuce? I was not expecting that one. Something that really matters is polyphenols in our diet. Sure. And polyphenols are the colored compounds in plants. They're richest in my favorite superfood ever, coffee. But tea, dark chocolate, not that much in red wine, but there's some. And spices and herbs, things like turmeric, oregano, um, any of those real pungent, bitter, astringent flavors usually are high in polyphenols. The average American gets a gram a day of polyphenols if they drink coffee. And the anti-aging people say you should have two. I take five grams a day. So we make a supplement, one of the bulletproof products. I'm always making stacked supplements that do things that I can't buy. I was taking 10 or 12 pills a day 
and I got it down to four. And it's down to four pills a day. That's no, no I, I take 150. I was going to say day, something but, changed dramatically. I took that 12 pills in the stack and took it down to four by combining the right amounts of those things. So I'm getting my polyphenols, but red lettuce is flavorful and it's full of polyphenols and you can eat pretty much as much of it as you want and it doesn't do anything. It's sort of invisible food that's high in polyphenols. So let's, let's do some rankings here. So if you were to rank your favorite dark leafy greens, we got red lettuce. What would, we'll go from leafy greens to nuts to fruits. Do they have to be leafy? Let's just talk about green. Okay. We'll just do greens. All right. Good deal. Top three for greens, fruits, and nuts. Uh, there's broccoli, uh, asparagus, uh, cauliflower, radicchio, uh, big fan of the brassica family. And the one that's probably near the top that people wouldn't expect is fennel. Mm-hmm. Uh, fennel is higher in polyphenols than celery. It is incredibly delicious, and most people just don't think of it. Maybe you see shaved fennel salad. You can take it and slice it up, stir-fry it, steam it, and it's it's an amazing flavor. So that's it just goes up there as a, as a chef, as you know, the author of a cookbook. Uh, it's amazing what happens when you include that in a dish. So it, it's a regular thing in my garden, regular thing on the family's table. And uh, from there, I actually recommend moderation in things like Swiss chard, collard greens, uh, kale, and even spinach, especially raw spinach, because they have much higher levels of these compounds that are hard for us to process. Sure. To the point that if I take raw kale to my sheep, they spit it out. You take smart. raw kale to your sheep. Well, I, I do. They won't eat it. <laughs> okay, so we'll segue to uh, fruits okay. and then nuts. Rank your so, fruits and nuts. On the Bulletproof Diet infographic, I went through and I ranked all these things based on sugar content, based on likelihood yep. of having mold forming on them and things like that. And from a fruit perspective, there's nothing like blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, and strawberries, lemons, limes. And during summer, when they're actually ripe and in season, I'm a fan of eating peaches and apricots and all the good stuff. Sure. But they're in season for about a month, depending on where you live. And the rest of the time, they're kind of candy. Yep. And what did you want nuts. after? Fruits and vegetables, nuts. I am a huge fan of macadamia nuts, peely nuts, walnuts, almonds, and cashews, which aren't technically a nut but they don't trigger nut allergies the way nuts do, and they are uh, steamed before they can be shelled, which removes a lot of the lectin content. Lectins sure. are some Lectins. of these. Very hot topic these days. Well, the 2014, they're in the Bulletproof Diet. They're yep. one of the, the mother nature four big sources of, of toxins, and we make a 1,000 lectins a day in our body. So lectins aren't bad, but some lectins are bad, and some lectins are very good, or they're just okay for someone, and for their neighbor, they might be really bad. So there's a lot of genetic variation there. So I chose cashews for Bulletproof Bars because they're low in lectin compared to any other legumes, and they don't trigger nut allergies the way nuts do for most people. So they're carefully selected to be lower in those toxins. So going back to the vegan-vegetarian question, what do you say to someone who's listening who is vegetarian or vegan says, well, I can't do this or too much, blah, 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 animal fat. I can't do it. Can't do it. Won't do it. Well, in my new book, uh, game changers, there's a whole law about weasel words. And anytime someone says they can't, it's like, seriously, what if we did something to your gut bacteria? Then could you, what if, and the reason is no, you're choosing not to. And I can respect that. When you tell me you can't, you're just playing helpless and sorry. No. Now, there's two different arguments 
uh, for these things. One is a health argument. Sure. Well, I'll take out the ethical. Okay. Well, we're not even, we, everyone gets the ethical yeah. argument. With- well, there's a death per calorie on grass-fed beef. It's lower than on a vegan diet, which is kind of interesting. So well, we don't have to, we have to go into detail on that. <laughs> that usually makes people mad, but hey, I did the math after talking to a monk in Tibet. I'm pretty serious about, you know, minimizing death. But let's just talk about health. On a vegetarian diet where you're getting full fat dairy, so you get enough saturated fat, and maybe some dairy protein if you tolerate it well, and you're eating eggs and you tolerate them well, you can do pretty well on it. But what you're going to be missing is collagen. And people on vegetarian diets sometimes, at least on well-structured vegetarian diets, can do pretty well. So you can be a bulletproof vegetarian pretty easily. Add more grass-fed butter, don't eat the toxic foods, add some brain octane oil, and you're going to see a shift in your hunger levels. You're going to feel very different. And here's the dirty secret about meat. Industrial meat is simply not good for you. I don't eat it. I'll, I'll eat a vegetarian meal or a vegan meal any day before I'll eat an animal that was mistreated and fed stuff that made the animal not something that I want to put in my body. But the other thing is, even if you're eating grass-fed meat, if you're eating steaks and the normal muscle meats that we eat, you're probably eating too much of it. And I was going to re- say, what's too much? Because I think so many people like anything, they say, oh, wait, meat, bacon, butter, amen, and that's the whole diet, and, and that's not really the reality of what no. you're talking about. And a lot of people on paleo uh, have this problem, and they're just eating too much meat. Even people not on paleo, just on you know normal standard American diet, they eat so much of this stuff that they get two amino acids called cysteine and methionine right. in excess. And those are shown to be inflammatory and to promote cancer at high levels. But if you say, well, I'm never going to eat meat again because of that, you can be low on those amino acids, which you can get if you like to eat tons of beans and starch and all the bad stuff that's in beans as well. But you miss out on the animal fats, and that's what's really important. Well, what's too much? In your opinion, right. like if I'm, if I'm eating, call it grass-fed beef, like what's too much? When I, do you start? I, to- I recommend two to four ounces of grass-fed beef. But that's it. A day? Yeah. Okay. You don't need a lot of it. So if you go to like a steakhouse, they've got like the 48 ounce ribeye, like, no, 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 no. That That's oh. like, that's your... Are we eating for pleasure or eating for health? No, I'm talking about health, <laughs> but I think that's the problem most people... You're yeah. talking two to four ounces, as most people realize. It's like, that's like a quarter of a, a serving at, yeah, it's, at it's most steakhouses. Yeah. It's a small It's a small filet mignon, but yep. why would you eat the filet? There's no fat on there. Right. So I'll eat, uh, I'll get the ribeye, hopefully not the 48 ounce one, and I'll share it with someone. But you get, that's the problem with a lot of menus. Yeah, it is the problem with venues. But uh, maybe you'll do six ounces. I'm, you know, 6'4", you know, 215 pounds or something. And I probably can easily do six ounces. If you want to do more meat, then there's one way to minimize the harm. And you need to increase the amount of glycine you eat. That's the role of collagen. If you eat glycine-rich foods with your muscle meats, you balance out the ratio of amino acids and you can minimize the harm from these extra things. So I make it a practice whenever I'm going to eat beef, grass-fed beef, grass-fed lamb, grass-fed pork, or not grass-fed, but pastured, then I take some collagen with it. And the reason you do that is the same reason they've been doing this in most ancient cultures for a long time. They have a little bit of bone broth soup right there as part of the meal. And it's because it actually balances out the way our body processes the protein. So the deal is, yes, grass-fed beef right now is more expensive than industrial beef. That's okay. You eat less of it, sure, and you're doing a good thing for your body and a good thing for the environment. But the most important thing isn't the protein from that meat. 
it's what I taught my kids is candy. And it's the strip of yellow fat on the edge of the ribeye. That has all these fat-soluble nutrients that are very hard to get from vegetables. So what I would say is, whether you're doing this for health reasons or ethical reasons, eating excess animal protein is bad for you. Eating no animal protein and no animal fat is very hard to do. You can pull it off as a vegetarian. And I was a, a very focused raw vegan for a while, well-educated. I can whip up a raw vegan dessert with all sorts of soaked whatever, like no one's business, <laughs> you know, full of sugar and full of plant toxins. And I know how to heat my food to less than 118 degrees and sure. all that stuff. And I actually lost weight on that diet. Most people do for the first six, eight weeks. After about three months, though, the changes in your cell membranes that happen from eating only plant fats, which are not native fats to our cell membranes, is that first your thyroid hormones kick up, you upregulate your metabolism to compensate, and then you hit a wall. And you start getting broken teeth the way I did. You get sore teeth, and your endurance goes down. Your food allergies go up. You get autoimmune conditions sometimes. And then you spend some time recovering from being a vegan. And there are thousands of people on the Bulletproof Diet who were vegan and realized, wow, at least when I added ghee from grass-fed cows back in, I started getting my hair back. I started feeling better. Mm. So I, I would eat gravel only. I, I, I mean, really, I'm willing to forsake flavor and pleasure to live a long time and to do the right thing for the environment. But I will do what works because going through the world at half power because you're trying to do the right thing and it worked at first and it stopped working slowly over time and you didn't notice, I, I'm not going to do that. I already did that. It didn't work. Right. So something you've said also is you want to live to 180, at least. At least. Thank you for so, that, at least. So, like, least. I don't want to die, so, so why, how? Well, <laughs> one of the things that inspired me, when I was 26, one of the board members of the nonprofit uh, in Silicon Valley uh, that I was running, um, he was 88 and single for a while, and he started dating and fell in love with a 35-year-old woman. Now... That was an unusual relationship, I'm sure. But the fact that he had the mental clarity to call me at midnight excited about something, uh, the ability to you know, have an active love life when he was almost 90, like I've seen people get younger. And these are people who didn't have the advantages that we have today with the knowledge we have. They're early trail breakers. So I know we can do 120 because I've seen people live to 120. And these are people mostly who didn't practice a lot of the things that we know. We understand telomeres. We understand mitochondrial function. I, mean, I wrote a whole book about it because I wanted to understand it. And I know that by minimizing the hits, I think aging is death by a thousand hits, a thousand small sure. cuts. You don't have to avoid everything. You don't have to be perfect, but you manage the big risk factors and you do what you can to slow that things down. At the same time, I'm in touch with researchers around the world because you know they, they call me because of Bulletproof Radio, because of the books. And... We are on the cusp of adding oh, 20% here, 30% there, 93% over there. These are actually real numbers from private studies that are happening right now for increasing lifespan. And yes, this is mouse or other animal lifespan, but not yeast lifespan. So I think 50% of my number is going to come from new innovations in technology. I'll hopefully play a hand in some of those even. And 120, I think I can do that without any new inventions than what we have today. And why would I want to do that? I imagine a world where we have a lot of people who realize, you know, I might be around 100 years from today. You know what you do if you're going to live on a world for 100 years? You don't fuck it up. 
Right. Right. So what, what you get when you're old, what I learned from these people three times my age was wisdom and it accumulates over time. It accumulates through making really, really dumb mistakes. And I imagine how wise I'll be when I'm 180 and what I'll have to offer and my ability to create change and to help other people. And I like that thought. Uh, I also get great pleasure from breaking dumb things and replacing them with things that are better. And I can't imagine not having fun doing that. So the, the real story of living to 180 is that I'd like to die at a time and by a method of my own choosing. <laughs> so there's the biohacking piece of this, yeah. which I think I can appreciate and most people can appreciate and it involves you know, lots of supplements and lots of testing and, and a certain level of commitment. Um, but then how do you think about the part that you can't get a test for as we talk about you know, purpose, joy, gratitude, no, all those things that you can't get a test for gratitude. You know, I don't know what what bloods I can get at LabCorp for that or what mm -hmm. have you. But like, how do you how do you yeah. think about that? And someone someone who's listening is like, you know what? I, I can't do all that. I I'm pretty healthy. I can do this. But God, I you know, I I, I want to live and have fun. I think you used a weasel word there. Which weasel word? You said I can't get a test for that. I'm saying some people say that, like, it, or I can't, I can't do it that frequently because they're yeah. over testing is a thing. And oh, I yeah. do believe there's like a TMI. Yeah. There's too much information we'll where it's like, so let's talk about gratitude specifically. It has played such a massive role in me not being an angry jerk all the time. I, I mean, <laughs> a, a huge thing when I was successful in Silicon Valley, I look back and I just kind of shake my head. I'm like, what kind of a jerk would do that sort of stuff? Um, I remember I made $6 million when I was 26 and I looked at a friend of mine at the same company where everyone had made that. And I said, yeah, I'll be happy when I make 10 million. Like the mindset behind that is just one of, of lack and you know, the hungry ghost syndrome and, and a lack of gratitude. And I just didn't understand that. And that was the piece that was missing. And I include gratitude in biohacking and that's why I'm grateful. I went to Tibet and did the meditation thing and have done a lot of personal development work. And along the way, I started doing EEG neurofeedback, hooking computers up to my brain to see what was going on in there. And a few years ago, I opened a brain facility uh, called 40 Years of Zen in Seattle. It's a five-day brain upgrade program. I spent four months of my life with electrodes on my head doing a gratitude practice with a computer teaching me to do it exactly right. And gratitude's important as a daily practice because it turns off fight or flight. But gratitude is also important because gratitude is the first step to forgiving everything that ever pissed me off. So if you want to go really deep on it, I can show you the brain waves of gratitude. We can measure gratitude and everyone can do it at home for a hundred bucks. It's called heart rate variability. Sure. You can plug this little sensor on your ear and when you're in a grateful state, when you've forgiven someone who pissed you off, the spacing of your heartbeat changes reliably. You can sit there and do breathing exercises and think about the bully in seventh grade, think about what your mom did when you were five or whatever it is that was pushing your buttons and you can see what it does to your stress levels and then you can train yourself to let that go. So it is more quantifiable than it's ever been. Well, let me ref let me ask you a different, different question then. What is not measurable, uh, which you think is critical to wellness? The hardest one that I don't know how to measure yet <laughs> is purpose. And finding your life's mission, it's one of the, finding your purpose, the reason you're here. This is one of the, the 46 laws in, in Game Changers, my new book. 
And it's the one that, that I can give soft advice on that, but it's hard to say, here's the algorithm to do that. Here's the supplement to do that. And there are various practices from shamanic lineages, from ancient Chinese things, from personal development, transpersonal psychology. And you basically sit down and you say, what are the things that just give me energy? And if you get energy from doing it, and it's not some sort of line of white powder or something ridiculous, I'm talking about actions, mm -hmm. then focus on that and your life's purpose is probably there. And if doing it, go, wow, I'm going to get rich doing that, but it doesn't give you energy, you might get rich, but you'll just get unhappy when you do it. And it's not what you're here to do. And so I wish I could give a stronger piece of advice than that. So how do you find your mission? How do you find your life's purpose? You know, I find I found mine at the top of a mountaintop, I found mine in the jungle. Uh, and different people have different paths to do that. But when you know it, uh, you know it like the same way um, you fall in love. You're like, oh, yeah, that's the one. And uh, until you find that, that's the most important thing. Because when you're doing that, everything is easy. And if you're not doing that, everything is a struggle. Right. So you're a guy who a lot of people go to for answers, who yeah. go to for research. And what do you do? Who do you go to? What do you do when, when you're stressed, when you're having a bad day, when you're not feeling well? You know, who does Dave Asprey go to when, you, when you're supposed to have a lot of the answers? It depends on... And what is that like? Normally, if I'm, I'm just having an off day, I can look back over the next 20, 40, 48 hours and I go, yep, that's what I did. Because I, I view pretty much everything... Uh, as uh, a balance of you know, what what's the good stuff and what's the bad stuff in that. So it's not good or bad. Very few things are all ones or zeros. And I say, oh, you know what? It's probably what I did last night at the restaurant because I you know, don't really know what they cooked it in or whatever it is. And so today, yeah, I've got muffin top and my brain's a little fuzzy and my word recall isn't perfect the way I want it to be. Uh, things like that that's small. I can handle it. I've got mitigation strategies for most of the things that go wrong on a day-to-day -day basis. The idea is I want to have the ability to be a CEO, an author, a podcaster, a husband and father. Right. Well, that's what I'm getting yeah. at. You do a lot. You travel, right. you're a parent, but, all these but things. But you have to have the ability to say, all right, things are off. How do I course correct quickly before they get really far off? Because if you keep doing the thing that's wrong five or six days in a row, you're really going to be off and it can take you two weeks to get back. So I don't tend to make those mistakes. It, it's been years since I really got that far off. And what that means is a lot of the time it might be more of a, like a thinking problem or a, a, an emotional thing where it's like, wow, I'm, I'm sort of stuck on this. And one of the side benefits of having started a neuroscience facility is I've got two neuroscientists and custom hardware and software uh, and huge numbers of friends who are shamans and spiritual healers and yoga teachers and things like that. So I can go down a, a path of, you know, I think I know what this is. I'm just going to do a quick EMDR session. Uh, or I'm going to sit down, I'm going to journal and see if I can figure out what this is, and then I'm going to do a forgiveness process on it. Uh, or maybe I have no freaking idea. And that's when I get pretty metaphysical. I, I call a handful of people who have spent most of their lives doing energetic stuff that I don't know how to do and they just know stuff and I can be like what's up well, who me? are those people like yeah. in the past like year or so I'm curious like who, who's who's I, really changed the way you've been thinking I've interviewed three people with that skill set recently on Bulletproof Radio there's uh, Shanoa Maxwell uh, who's a, a shaman and there's Dr. Barry Morgulon a UCLA surgeon who uh, 
they based Dr. Strange on. He spent 20 years in China in a monastery as the only Westerner learning the lineage that protected the emperors of China. And, you know, I can talk to him, and sometimes he just he's perceptive in ways that I'm not. I'm like, oh, why didn't I see that? He's like, you didn't spend 20 years in a monastery, did you? And, I mean, there's Alberto Viotto, who's been on the show as well, and Shaman Durek. Uh, as another friend, so I'm I'm incredibly blessed to be able to call. You got two shamans yeah. on your list. Uh, yeah, I mean I've done Alberto Fierro's shamanic training. I mean yeah. I'm, I'm willing to go deep on this stuff, and the reason is, the worst I'll do is I'll learn something that doesn't work, and if I learn something that adds a little bit of knowledge, or a different emotional sense of the world, or makes me more perceptive, or most importantly more self-aware, more conscious of my actions, then I win. And if there's way deeper stuff, and sometimes there is, then I win twice. But mm-hmm. I don't think there's great risk from you know, being exploratory and curious on those things. But I'm not you know, a, a true believer where I'm just going, oh, wow, is that a crystal? Can I have that? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's a mindset that it isn't questioning and discerning. Uh, but I've found there are people who just know stuff that I don't know, and I can ask them and they'll help me. And I'm, I think that's really cool. So what do you think the future of wellness is? Where do you think things are going in, like, say, the next year or three years? We are to the point where computers are better at diagnostic than a lot of doctors. You can take your data set and you can run it through some artificial intelligence engines, and they're going to tell you what's wrong. It's accelerating way faster than people think. So we're going to get to the point where your doctor is a collaborator and a health coach and someone who helps you with compliance and less of the guy doing the diagnosis or the woman doing the diagnosis. And you'll still have these amazing experts who say, you know, I spent the last 20 years focusing on this one weird problem. You know, I I know everything about sinuses and they're not just a normal sinus doctor, but they've just gone off the reservation, read every paper and started doing genetic testing of boogers or whatever the heck they're doing. And those people are gems, and I, I work to find them and interview them because they know everything about this one thing that probably half the population has wondered about. But for the routine stuff, a lot of it's going to become way more obvious. We're also going to discover and are discovering that toxic mold plays a role in so many more things than oh, anyone yeah. ever imagined. Talk to Mark Ivan about that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Mark is a dear friend, and um, he's actually in my documentary called Moldy. It's moldymovie.com. And I funded this out of my own pocket about four years ago because toxic mold is one of the reasons I weigh 300 pounds. And it is a, it's in 100 million homes in the U.S. I even started a company called Homebiotic that makes a, a probiotic that you spray around your house that eats mold before it can grow. And these are personal to me. That stuff trashed my brain. Uh, Dr. Amen, uh, uh, the sure. change your brain, change your life, uh, another dear friend, he looked at my brain scan. He said, Dave, if I saw your brain and I didn't know it was you, this is the brain of someone who lives under a bridge doing street drugs. Like you had chemically induced brain damage from mold. I recovered, and I'm so fortunate to have done that. How come most people test for mold? That's something we talk like. If, if you're out there listening, you're like, all right, I think something's fishy going on. What should I do? There are two things you want to test. One is the air in your house or your workplace, wherever it smells funky or wherever you see water damage or even if you don't see it. And the current state of the art is something called an ERMI test, an environmental relative mold index. They measure the air inside your house and outside your house, and they look at the difference. And if you've got a lot more toxic stuff indoors, well, there's a smoking gun. You need to solve the problem. 
And then you want to test the body. And this is something that is difficult to do. And there are now tests that you can do for mycotoxins, which are toxins derived from mold. And you can test your blood for these. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because in animal husbandry, we know this. We have for 25 years. They know that birth rates decline in cows fed moldy food. In fact, bulletproof coffee beans, they're made the way they are to avoid mold formation in the green coffee processing part, which is a known issue in the coffee industry because low doses, parts per billion of mycotoxins are controlled for in many countries because they know it increases bladder cancer and increases kidney cancer, increases DNA damage. So we're gonna find that mold is an issue in the environment and in the body. We're gonna find viruses are doing way more than we thought. About 8% of our DNA comes from viruses and we all have viruses that we probably don't know about, especially plant viruses. Well, let's talk more about that raw vegan diet. I'm, sure I'm still paying for that. And we're also going to find that there are other microbes that are that are wreaking havoc on us we don't know about. There's a guy with a million dollar reward right now who absolutely believes that Alzheimer's disease is a bacteriological or microorganism communicable disease and is going to pay someone a million dollars who can prove it. Who is it? Uh, and you can ask me his name. It's I was not Bredesen. No, it's not Bredesen. Uh, I just interviewed Dale. He's great. Yeah. Um, this is a, a guy who spent you know, 30 years as a physician and an epidemiologist and looked at very careful data for a couple of years and said, you know what? This follows the exact pattern of something that's infectious. I don't know if it is or isn't. And Bredesen now has the, the most uh, up-to-date protocols I've seen for Alzheimer's right. involving ketosis and you know, some of the things that are I, some things I draw or I drew on for Headstrong the mitochondria book where research on Alzheimer's and dysfunction of mitochondria. So is it a fungal toxin? Is it bacteriological? Is it some weird phage we never thought about? We are discovering all sorts of things. My friend Naveen Jain at Viome, um, I've sequenced everything in my gut. I can tell you the name of every single species and what it does in my gut because of that test. He just added 10,000 new bacterial species to the world database of bacteria growing in our guts that no one knew about because he has such a big sample size and the ability to sequence sure. it rapidly. What, what, are, what are those guys doing? The answer is nobody knows, but we know your gut bacteria talk to the mitochondria in your cells, which are themselves ancient bacteria. This is completely new ground. So a lot of things that we think, oh, that just happens and you get old. No, it happens because something did it to you and we're gonna find out who's guilty and we're gonna get rid of them. <laughs> so, what's, so what's the vision for Bulletproof? You know, you, you've come quite a quite a long way in, in the dozen or so years that you've been at this. Well, and and now you're just like, I feel like you're picking up speed. You're launching new SKUs. You've sure. got new bars coming out. Uh, you know, where, what's the vision? Like, where are you going? What's the next year, three years? I always say you can't sure. do five. It's impossible. Uh, just to be clear, Bulletproof started in early 2012, but the work... The work, you put, you've been at this for a while. Oh, I've been at it for a while, but Bulletproof <laughs> didn't exist. I didn't put the blog out until then. It was it was a matter of you know, becoming an expert before I launched something formally. So, it's like so counterintuitive to what yeah. everyone else does these days. <laughs> well, uh, you, you got to build something that works. And the future there, it goes back to our mission statement. And we make uh, products that radically improve people's lives to help them tap into the unlimited power of being human. I do not know the limits of where I'm going to go. And I know where I was 20 years ago. I know that I'm aging. I know that I look younger now than I did five years ago. And I know that I have more energy and more focus. And let's find out what happens if you start when you're five. 
Perhaps you start when you're conceived. What is the top level power people can have? I don't know, but let's find that. And Bulletproof is going to help do that. And we're doing that starting with food and beverages and supplements and collagen bars and coffee. And there's a giant market out there. We're disrupting it. And we're going to help to create a world where the only food that you can buy is food that you actually want to eat. That's actually food. And that's going to take a lot of knowledge. And it's going to take a lot of the kind of knowledge uh, that you're working on, Jason, as well, even with the show, with your website, you know, helping people say, hey, this works, this doesn't work. And to become discerning consumers of things that either help them, are neutral, or don't help them, and to know the difference. And when we finish that mission, the world will look very different because the incidence of every chronic disease will go down. And more importantly, the level of human happiness, uh, the number of people willing to be uh, nice to each other, uh, kind, uh, to be of service, it it goes up because that's what we're supposed to do when we're not hungry all the time. So is there any category you won't do? It's like, will we ever see a bulletproof hotel? Or is there something like, ah, not in a million years, we're never going to touch that, or someone's doing it, or... Man, that's that's a tough one. Uh, You know, I I don't think that's in our roadmap uh, right now, (laughs) uh, I can tell you. Um, bulletproof cigars would be pretty hard to do. Uh, you know, the, the, those are fundamentally not not going to be on the list. You know, the bulletproof gluten probably won't be there either. But right now, we're sticking to food and beverage and supplements. And I don't know where the future holds. I, I have a hard time saying impossible or never or can't uh, because I've found almost always there are some assumptions I haven't thought about sure. when I say that. So I don't really see a bulletproof hotel in the future. But we have the Bulletproof Cafe in Santa Monica, yeah. and there's one in Seattle, another one in downtown L.A. We just took Bulletproof Labs, which is a facility that has all the technology that can get a signal in your body to recover faster than Mother Nature intended or to get more exercise in less time than you're supposed to. And we spun that out, and it's in the middle of raising a $20 million round. It'll become its own company. It's called Upgrade Labs. Wow. So Upgrade Labs will be its own company. So it, you're splitting, wow. It will. Okay. And the reason is that it's really hard to prioritize a facility that, that does intravenous nutrients and red light therapy and cryotherapy and a bunch of other things people haven't heard of yet that, that astronauts use to recover. How do you balance your focus on that and creating the world's cleanest coffee and you know, the next protein so bar. what was the thing I did at the Soho pop-up, the vibrating? Uh, uh, the Bulletproof Vibe. The Bulletproof Vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thing. Uh, we've had it. That on, was fun. We've had it on the market for six so or so years. explain to people what the, it's like sure. you go on, it's like super intense. Yeah, well, you could go on a little mini trampoline, you know, the way Tony Robbins does behind stage, if you've ever seen his videos. And uh, you can bounce up and down about one time a second. This platform vibrates up and down 30 times a second. And it helps with lymphatic circulation and it helps with muscles and bones and neurological things. And I stand on it 15 minutes a day. Sometimes we're on the phone and do a few squats and a few stretches and it invigorates you in a way that going for a walk doesn't. And it was originally developed for astronauts to recover better from space travel, the 30 Hertz frequency that we use. It's a device in a lot of chiropractors and massage therapists office now. And a lot of people just buy it for their house. I have one next to my desk. So there are a lot of things that that you believe in we believe in that are you know i'll say like there's some skepticism are there certain things that are out there which you can unequivocally say like that actually is horseshit like that doesn't work that that are 
you know, in the wellness space, you know, that are a little out there that people swear by where you would say like, you know what, maybe it works for you, but the science actually isn't there. Like, are there things out there in, in our wellness world and, you know, maybe the West side of LA or, <laughs> you know, or in Boulder or wherever it may be, are there things where you're like, you know what, science isn't there. The vegan diet. <laughs> there you go. I had to say it. Okay. And kale, screw kale. Stuff Any, doesn't taste good. What about any like treatments or therapies or, you know, and I look, I've, I've tried everything and yeah, I, me I too. My, my philosophy is if it works for you and you feel good, great. I, I really, I'm not in the, in the, I, I don't like the mindset of being in a takedown space. I, it, that's no, not but I say how I, it works. No, I, I agree. But I, I think that, look, I love, I would say for us, we get really excited here at Mind Buddy Green when like Eastern and Western come together and oh, support yeah. each other. Like that's the future of medicine. It's functional medicine. So like when science catches up to meditation or mindfulness or whatever it is, like that's exciting. But I'm just always curious, like, well, where's the science strong? Where is it weak? The problem there is, is that when we look at strong science versus weak science, it's always coming down to funding. And so when you talk to someone, well, I spent the last 30 years in my lab studying this and I've been doing it on you know, self-funded $5,000 a year. And here's what I know. No one knows about the science or they just won't believe it because no one's bothered to reproduce sure, it. Sure, sure, sure. An example there, structured water. And, you can say, well, that's total BS, but I ended up funding research at University of Washington with Gerald Pollack, um, who discovered that your body changes the structure of water so you can fold proteins better and make ATP in cells. And it turns out, yeah, you can make exclusion zone water. You can make it with tiny droplets of fat suspended in water. Uh, you can make it with different kinds of machines with 1200 nanometer light, the way your cells do. So even something like that where... I might have been a skeptic 10 years ago, but an open-minded skeptic saying, look, I don't know. I don't see a mechanism of action, but here's the deal. We don't know how meditation really has a mechanism of action. You meditate and this will happen in the body. Why? No one can tell you. So those kind of skeptics could say it cannot exist without a mechanism of action. Like if you need one, leprechauns there. Sure. Now you have a mechanism of action. You can just chill out and go see if it works or not. And maybe later we'll figure out how. So I, I really think it's dangerous to say, that doesn't work because it can't work. Uh, that's anti-science. And I'm willing to say uh, the great majority of the homeopathic remedies that I've used, I really haven't experienced uh, a lot of benefit from. But I've had a few of them that were profoundly effective, way beyond what I expected. And the kind of healers I know who use them, uh, some of whom are you know, Johns Hopkins surgeons who became homeopaths, they get routine results that are off the charts. So didn't work well for me. Maybe I was living in a moldy house at the time, and sure, that's why. Sure. So N equals one is most important for you, but to throw out a therapy because it didn't work for me, it, we're really complex systems here. Sure. So I, I wish I had a better answer for you. And I'll also say, since I said the vegan diet, I know a few people who have kicked ass into their 60s doing it, but man, they are few and far between. And so even there, you know, doing it, you know, for, for health benefits, I don't think there's great evidence for that. Um, doing it for other reasons, you know, your reasons will vary, but, um, that that's one that I think has received way too much attention and will not lead to long-term improvements, but will lead to short-term improvements. Oh, man, I'm really digging deep to find something that I'm like, I just want no, to say no, that's fair. so dumb. I no, just, no, but you know, it's, I, I always, I think we're in this exciting time where science is catching up and, and with also the explosion of wellness, there comes skepticism. And I think it's always great when you can just like, 
saying, you know yeah. what, this works, and this, and maybe this over here eh, is a way to go, and that's and, fine. And I'm, I'm there even on the vegan diet. I'll say, look, if you're going to do it, doing the Coke and Doritos uh, kind of vegan diet probably isn't the way to do it. No. So maybe, how would you do the least harmful vegan diet? And what would you do? You'd eat lots of undamaged fats, and you're going to have to get your coconut oil that way, and you're going to eat a lot of plants and a lot of grains and beans and things like that. So even that can be tweaked, and I'm perfectly happy to be vegan for a month. It, it's probably good for you. It's just ongoing, unending stuff that, man, that's that's really tough. So there's always a spectrum. And, and let's get something really rare, like crystal healing, right? I know some people, usually shamanic lineage people, they can do stuff I can't explain, but man, it's, sure. it's very tangible. And I know other people wave crystals around and chant, and they've been doing it for 25 years, and they're still sick, and doesn't seem like it's doing anything. Right. So, <laughs> you know, the, the practitioner is the variable that's missing from the discussion here. You have a patient, you have a modality, and you have a healer. And Western medicine tries to remove the healer, but the healer and the modality work as a system. And you really can't separate those two. What you want to test is say, can this healer with this modality work on this type of patient? You're going to get a different result. And that's the, the scary edge of medicine where getting data starts to show things aren't as simple as we thought. Sure. I love that. 100% agree. So I, I always close with the same question. So what keeps you up at night and what has you excited every morning? My average time to sleep is three minutes always and it has been for years things don't keep me up at night uh, except for caffeine that'll do it really caffeine keeps you up at night that's why you quit drinking caffeinated coffee at two and otherwise i i ruthlessly went through and i hunted down the worrying voices in my head and i got rid of them <laughs> i mean years of work <laughs> and i mean i could spend a lot of my energy worrying but i'm going to spend it playing with my kids so I will not allow my ego to do that to me. So I can truly say, um, I don't I don't worry. I do think about things like plastic in the ocean, but I don't worry sure. about it. In fact, I come up with solutions for it. Wouldn't it be kind of cool to do this? And maybe someday you know, like, there's a way to work on that. Uh, but to worry about it, no, I'm just, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna make intelligent choices and I'm going to go to sleep. And you know, do I pay attention to it? You know, will regulatory authorities make it illegal to buy healthy food? I could worry about it or I could, make food that's so good that if people if they try to do that then people would say you know we're not going to do it riots in the streets uh, <laughs> so that said there are things outside my control and if i worry about them i just waste energy it doesn't do anything to worry and what keeps what has you excited in the morning then what has me excited in the morning is the the people who stop me on the street uh the, the letters the emails i get from people who say dave i lost 100 pounds I got my brain back. Uh, I'm out of pain. Um, I started my blog. I started you know, Bulletproof with relatively small goals. I, I get five people benefit the way I have from this knowledge. All I've done a solid for the for the world. And to get messages like that every day, man, that, that gets me excited. It, it was, at this point, it's almost an immeasurable amount of time on a per-person basis. Uh, in order to touch uh, someone's life, to make a permanent change in the way they feel. And if you can't wake up excited knowing that something you did today or that you're going to do today uh, might change 100,000 people's lives, 
by helping 10 people be nice to everyone around them. Right. If you can be excited about that, you, you have to be a total jerk. <laughs> so if you could go back in time and give 20 something Silicon Valley Dave advice, what advice would that be? Uh, this is also one of the rules uh, from Game Changers, one of the laws. And it has to do with stress and burnout. And it's that uh, when you're young, you can push yourself really, really hard. And the people who are most successful are most prone to doing that. And we never prioritize recovery. And no one tells you, especially when you're in your 20s, that the people who recover like professionals do better than the people who work out like professionals. So <laughs> if you're going to be going and living the entrepreneur lifestyle and you don't focus on sleep and the things that make you stronger as much as you focus on growing your business, your business will not grow as fast. If I'd have known that, maybe I would have, you know, instead of staying up all night studying health stuff and, and doing the things that, that helped me become wealthy and then poor again as a young man, um, if I'd have known that, I would have had very different priorities and I probably would have been a lot nicer along the way. I would have suffered less, I would have spent less money, and I probably would have had more money now because I wouldn't have made all the dumb decisions I made when I was young because I was too tired and stressed out to pay attention. That's good. I buy that. Rest is very important. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thanks so much for being here. Check out his new book, Game Changers, All Things Bulletproof, especially those, those college and cookie dough bars. They are my downfall. Jason, thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs>